You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Uh, good to be with y'all this morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jake. I mostly work at our downtown church. We are in a three-week series of our series, Greater Than. This is week three, so I get it. Y'all saved the best for last, so I, I appreciate that. Thank you all for having me. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, so if you have a Bible, turn there. Uh, and as you're turning there, I came across this story that I thought was really interesting, and it relates to our time this morning. So there's a, there's a New Testament professor over in Chicago, and what he does with his New Testament students every year, first semester, the first day, he says, what I want you to do, I want you to get a, a sheet of paper, I want you to draw a line down the middle, you have two columns. And he says, the column on the left, what I want you to do I want you to write out what you think God is like. So give me all the characteristics, descriptors, attributes. Spend a few minutes writing down everything you think God is like on the column on the left. So he gives them a few minutes, lets them write it down. And then he says, all right, now what I want you to do, the column on the right, I want you to write down all the descriptors and characteristics that you think you are like. So he gives them a few minutes to write that all down. And he says, all right, at the end of that time, look at both columns. And what he said after doing this for years and years, he says the, the similarities between the column on the left and the right are about 90% identical. Which just, it, it gets you thinking, right? Like, uh, it leads us to question really this idea of, do we really think God is just a slightly bigger version of ourselves. Lots of people seem to think so. Uh, one philosopher said this. He said, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Man. So it leads us to the question uh, here this morning to, to close out the series. How do we really know what God is like? As we talked about last week with Job, God is, is higher than our thoughts, his ways are higher than our ways, we can't even begin to think or fathom or understand the eternal, infinite mind of the creator God of the universe. So where do we even start? How can we begin to possibly understand what God is like? To answer that question, we're going to be looking at Exodus 20 and Exodus chapter 32. So Exodus 20 is a popular one. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, that's where we get the Ten Commandments. If you were like me, maybe you like grew up in church and Sunday school, like you memorized this with a song and dance growing up. I'm not going to do it just to save myself the embarrassment, and plus it's being live streamed, so you know I don't want that to go out into the world. But the Ten Commandments, this is coming straight out of the Israelites being rescued supernaturally from the hand of the Egyptians. God supernaturally works by uh, parting the Red Seas, destroying the Egyptians. Uh, the Israelites are being led by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day. Like, obviously, God is supernaturally on their side and working for them. And then we get to the Ten Commandments. And I don't know uh, how you were taught this, but this is not a set of rules to follow so that you can uh, have God's favor on your side. It's no, God has rescued you. He saved you. And the Ten Commandments are a way of saying, now this 
is how you live the good life that I have provided for you. Here's how you can tap into my blessing and my presence. Here's how you can experience and know me by following the Ten Commandments. So commandment number one, have no other gods before me, right? Don't worship any other god. You worship me alone. And then we get to commandment number two, which is where we're going to spend a lot of our time this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, read this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, at first glance, this sort of sounds like a repetition of commandment number one. It kind of sounds like what they're saying is, all right, commandment number one, don't worship any other gods. Commandment number two, don't worship anything that looks like another god. But that's not quite it. So commandment number one is all about worshiping the right God, Yahweh, the creator of the universe. And commandment number two is about worshiping the right God, but worshiping him in the wrong way. So back in the day, this is like 3,000 years ago in, in the Middle East, other religions, other, other people that worshipped other gods would create little images or icons of their god, usually out of like wood or stone. They would try to imagine what they thought their god that they worshipped would look like. So they created these little stones and statues, and then they would try to perform these right sacrifices and practices and and offer up these sort of sacrifices in hopes that uh, their God, their spirit would descend onto this image, and then they would reap whatever benefits this God provided for them. And God in commandment number two says, no, 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 that's that is not how this relationship works. I've, I've made you, you don't get to make me, right? So here's what happens then. Uh, Of all the Ten Commandments that God gives, don't murder, don't lie, don't steal, don't do all of this. Of all the Ten Commandments, the Israelites, within the first few days of being rescued out of Egypt, this is the first commandment that they break. So skip on down to chapter 32. This is where it gets wild. Moses is coming down the mountain of God. He has the Ten Commandments in his hands, like the concrete is still drying off on the tablets. And then we get to chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, that is the mountain of God, where he was spending time face to face with the creator God, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, This man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So you can sort of pick up on the tone, right? They're bullying Aaron around. You can sense how they're sort of making fun of Moses. Hey, this guy, he's taking too long. Come on, Aaron. Verse 2. So Aaron said to them, all right, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Which, side note, The gold that is in their ears comes straight from the Egyptians. When God rescued them from the Egyptians, God said, all right, Israelites, take all the gold from the Egyptians. So what they're doing, this is like a tangible reminder, like on their bodies, God has saved them and rescued them. He's on their side. And Aaron says, all right, take take the gold off. So verse 3, so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. 
He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Notice who this feast is for. It's for the Lord. Aaron used the name of Yahweh, saying, this is the image of the God that saved them. If it didn't get weird and wild enough, check out verse 6. And then they rose up early the next day and offered burnt sacrifices and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That word play is a Hebrew word, sakah. And other translations draw this out, but this was a Hebrew sort of phrase that was most likely referring to sex. So with like a thousand other people, all right? So basically, they make an image of a giant golden cow. They begin worshiping in front of it, offering sacrifices to it, trying to evoke God's favor and blessing to come down to inhabit this image and part of their ritual. Thousands of them get drunk together and, you know, have, uh, you know, there are kids in the room. So This is one of those stories where, you know, we are 3,500 years removed from this story happening. And you might think to yourself, especially if this is like uh, your first time coming to Two Notch or you're brand new to Jesus, you might be thinking, okay, moral of the story is don't make a big golden cow and don't get drunk in front of it and, you know, invite a thousand of my closest friends for some party, okay? I get it. But honestly, we got to ask ourselves, why on earth is this in our Bibles? And I think what it actually does, it actually reveals something about us that I want us to unpack. And a big clue in figuring out what this text has to do with us is, tr- is really trying to understand what was it that they were worshiping and bowing down to. So they're worshiping and bowing down to a golden calf. Now, why on earth is that important and significant for us? A couple of reasons. Uh, number one. Uh, the surrounding pagan nations around them who worshipped other gods had images and icons and statues that looked exactly like this. God's people were supposed to be set apart. They're supposed to be different, look different, act different. They were supposed to be unique because Yahweh, the God of the universe, has set their love on them and them alone. So their worship needs to look different. Their lives need to look different. But a second aspect the, the calf that they worshipped, back then it was a symbol of strength and power. So many other religions out there during that time would worship animals based off of what they think they could get out of this image or God. Each one had their own special attribute that you had to perform for to get their blessing and their favor. And think about it, if you're an Israelite, and you are roaming through the wilderness, you don't have a a town or a home to call your own, you're probably feeling pretty weak, and you're feeling pretty powerless. And so if you had to think up a god, your mind would start going to, well, what do the other gods worship, And, and what do we need? We need to feel security. We need to feel power. We need to feel control. What should we worship? Oh, I know. We need to worship a calf. So the Israelites, out of this craving desire for power and control. They created this false projection of God to give them some sense of security. 
They were feeling insecure. They felt like God had bailed on them, that God wasn't meeting their timelines. He wasn't meeting their expectations. So they had to take matters into their own hands because God was not meeting up to their expectations. Ah, we're getting there. And while none of us are building some giant golden calf in our living room or bowing down or worshiping it, the reality is all of us, all of us try to make God into our own image. And this manifests itself in all sorts of ways in our culture and in our lives. So a few ways in which we try to make God into our own image. Uh, One of those could be our upbringing or our family of origin. Oftentimes our authority figures growing up, whatever attributes they have, we can tend to project that onto God. Or if you grew up in the church, or maybe not, you were led to believe a certain thing about God, and then you actually encountered the God of Scripture and thought, whoa, 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 this is not what I was led to believe growing up. These are ways in which we make a false God. Another way in which we do that is our feelings or our culture. When we allow our feelings or our culture to dictate who we think God is like, where, man, uh, when it comes to a passage of the Bible that we really love, like, God is love. Man, I love that. I I love all that. But the parts where he's wrathful or the parts where he gets angry, oh, no, 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 I I don't like that. Let's let's ignore that. We try to elevate and de-elevate the things we like and we don't like. Or there are times when we let our desires shape how we view God, where we fear fear God might not give us something. So, Let's say, for example, you desire more than anything to be in a relationship or to get married or to have a better career or a better salary. And so your desires lead you to believe that God is going to give you those things where God is just some some cosmic servant there in the sky to make your life better. But when you do that, you end up creating a false God, a God in your image. There are also times when we allow our, our sin to shape what we think God is like, to believe, man, I know God is gracious and he is forgiving with my sin, but man, the sins of other people, man, God really does not like them. Or you could even flip it around and think, man, I know God is really forgiving and merciful to the other people, but man, uh, the stuff that I have done, my past, stuff that I wrestle with, there's no way God could be gracious and forgiving to me. These are all different ways in which we shape God and when we fashion him into our own image. Just for example, I created a a list in which uh, ways in which I have inadvertently made God into my own image. So let me know if any of these ring true for you. So for example, according to my false view of God, if I am just uh, a good enough Christian, if I do enough things, well then I'll always have good health and I'll have financial security and I won't ever have to think about money ever again. And if I'm a good enough Christian, and if I'm a good enough dad, right now I have three kids, uh, six, four, and two. And if I'm a good enough Christian, and if I'm a good enough dad, then all my kids will be obedient. They will never break the rules. They'll be quiet. They'll be respectful. They will call me sir. They will rise up and call me blessed. And all the parents in the room say, yeah, right, good luck. I can tell that's a false God, right? Uh, Here's one I believe a lot. If I do good at my job, ministry, if I do good, then people will always show me respect. 
And I will get emails all the time, people telling me, hey, that was a great message you preached. People will always show respect, and, and our church and our family of churches will be really, really healthy. My false image of God, uh, he's really gracious with my sin. Man, he understands me. He gets me. He's on my side. But, man, people who sin against me, well, God is all wrath, all judgment. This is how I shape God into my own image. And the problem is when we create a false image of God, you know what we end up doing? We just create a bigger version of ourselves. We end up creating a Thomas Jefferson Bible where he was literally taking the pages in the Bible that didn't line up with what he thought or believed. So he took scissors to his Bible, cutting up pages and paragraphs and whole passages of Scripture. But the reality is when we make God into our own image, that is what we're doing. It may not be so extreme and overt as taking literal scissors to the Bible, but what we do is we subconsciously take these scissors to our Bible to upplay or downplay the things that we don't like. And when we do this, we end up creating this this false God that looks a lot like us. We create this funhouse mirror God where we accentuate certain attributes of him and totally downplay or ignore other parts altogether. And all of that feels extreme to us, but this is what happens, that we all do this. And when we do this, it actually goes terribly for us. So if you look back in Exodus chapter 20, I'll read that again. Look how commandment number two ends the way it does. It says, for those who make a false image of me, for those who have a false perception of me and worship a false perception of me, it says he will punish those, according to chapter 20, verse 5, he will punish those who hate me. Let's put that slide back up again. For those who hate me, this is what happens when we create and worship a false god. That God is saying, when we prune off the parts we don't like, that's actually hatred of him. And what it exposes in us is that when we do this, we hate who God actually is. We don't want to come to God humbly. We don't want to submit to his good design. Instead, we try to flip the tables and say, no, God, you submit to us. You're here to serve us. Because uh, God calls us to be in relationship with him, to love him, to be in right relationship. But uh, if you have ever had a close friendship, maybe you're married here in the room, We know that that's not how relationships work. When relationships, when you demand, this is what you ought to do for me, we all all know if you've ever had close friendship or you're in a marriage, that that is not how relationships work. Because to do that, to make another person fit your mold, to meet your demands, is according to the Bible to hate them because you reject who they are as a person. I'll give you an example. Uh, My wife, We've been married now almost eight years. She is really good with our kids, right? Like, she is just a far better parent. Uh, She's more gracious and uh, patient with them. Now, imagine what happens if I come home from work one day, and she's been with the kids all day, and they're starting a rough house and wrestle, and, and I come home, and she says, Honey, thank goodness you're here. How's your day? And I say, not right now, baby. I got I got some more work to do. I'll, I'll talk to you here in a bit. Go to a separate room, do some work. Uh, dinner rolls around. She pops her head in. The kids are getting louder. Hey, baby. Hey, you, you good? You answering those emails? I could really, really use your help here. 
I'm saying, no, 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 not right now, baby. And plus, I mean, you're, you're really good at this. I feel like you got this, so I love you, baby. I'll talk to you here in a bit, right? A couple hours, roll past. It's getting close to bedtime for the kids. I hear weeping. I hear yelling. I hear gnashing of teeth. And then I hear my kids on the other the other. And my wife just like barges into the room and says, honey, I need your help. Help me, please. Will you help me? And I say, baby, look, you've got this. You're a great parent. You don't need my help. I love you, baby. I'll talk to you here in a little bit, please. Now, imagine that goes on day after day. I'm not bothering communicating with her. I'm not bothering building a relationship with her. Everything I say is purely for the means of suiting my desires to take care of our kids. Project that on and on day after day. How do you think that's going to go for my relationship? Exactly. It's going to go terribly because at the end of the day, I'm just using her to get something that I want. It ends up destroying our relationship altogether because my love for her, quote unquote, in reality is actually hatred of her. And I'm not respecting her as a person. My call is to be in relationship with her, to love her, to build with her in all of her fullness, to partner with her and cherish her for what it's worth. Me and my wife, we're doing great. Okay. Okay. And this is what happens when we create a false image of God. What God is saying is, when you make a false image, you're just using me to get what you want. You're not loving me according to who I am. What you're really doing is hating me. But here's the thing. When we love a false image of God, a God that we've made in our image, he actually becomes a pretty weak and frail God. He becomes a puny, tiny God to worship because he's just a slightly bigger version of ourselves. He's no longer the omnipotent God of the universe. He's a God that you can manage, a God that you've put in your own box. But your God that you've made for yourself cannot handle the test of time for too long. It's inevitable that this fake God you've you've propped up for yourself is going to eventually disappoint you. Maybe not now, but soon this fake God is going to disappoint you. So let's say you remake your God to where he's all about your comfort and your happiness. Well, what happens when pain and suffering comes your way? You start to get angry and point the finger at God and think, God, why why would you allow this to happen to me? But guess what? You weren't really worshiping the real God in the first place. You were worshiping a fake God. So lots of people walk away from God because of pain or suffering, thinking, well, I can't believe or worship a God who would just allow this to happen. But newsflash, you weren't worshiping the real God all along. You were worshiping a God of comfort and of happiness. Or when you say, "Uh, well, God was supposed to give me this. He was supposed to give me good health, or he was supposed to give me a relationship or a good salary, and, and none of that's coming along. Well, What happens when someone says, yeah, God was supposed to give me this relationship, but it just blew up in my face, so I'm out of this whole God thing completely? Well, you were worshiping a God of romance. You were not worshiping the God of the Bible. Or what happens when you have a God who suits your own cultural preferences, and then you come across something in Scripture that just goes completely against what your feelings say, or completely what the culture says? Just walk away completely. You 
doubt and you deconstruct or do you answer, you uh, have all these questions that you don't like the answers to. So you just walk away from God. I can't believe a God would do this. Well, you were worshiping a God of your feelings, not the God of the Bible. What happens if you remake God thinking he's okay and comfortable with your sin, but not everyone else's sins? What happens? Over time, you get judgmental. You get self-righteous. When people call you out on sin or your blind spots, you get angry. You ignore them. You, you push them away altogether. And slowly over time, your, your life, your vibrancy just begins to wither away. Or what happens when you uh, flip it and you believe, man, God is gracious with other people, but he's not gracious with me. What happens? Over time, you allow shame and guilt to just crush you spiritually. And all these things, your deformed version of God ends up deforming you. Your deformed version of God ends up deforming you. As one uh, theologian said, he said it like this, if our God never contradicts us, if he never makes us mad, then we are likely not worshiping him. We're just worshiping a reflection of ourselves. Think about that. If he never makes us mad, we're probably just worshiping a reflection of ourselves. When we set up this false image of God, we end up setting up for ourselves just an avalanche of disappointment and failure because at the end of the day, we're not putting God on the throne. We're just putting ourselves on the throne. And if you really want to know God, if you really want to know what he is like, then it means we need to allow God to say things through his word and through his people that you don't want to hear. We need to hear that over and over again, to hear things that just might upset you because you know it's good for you. Because if you let God speak into your life what he's really about, even if it upsets you, even if it offends you, then on the other side of that is deeper healing, deeper intimacy, deeper love and joy in Jesus. Another pastor puts it like this, only the faith that believes God regarding things it doesn't want to hear can believe God about the things it desperately does want to hear. God's love for you, God's forgiveness offered to you, God's mercy, God's joy, God's peace, God's God's power, his control. It requires hearing everything about God, accepting him in all of his fullness and not just the certain parts that you like or you don't like. So if you're here this morning and you desperately need to hear right now in your life that God loves you and he is with you and that he will never forsake you, then that includes listening to the same God who is inevitably going to offend your feelings and your sensibilities from time to time. It requires being open to people in our church family who love you and who love Jesus and who want Jesus for you and care for you enough to call you out in your blind spots and to tell you things that you don't necessarily want to hear. If you're here this morning, maybe you're racked by guilt or shame or anxiety because of what you're doing or what you've done in your life where you look at your past and you think, gosh, I, Jesus I need to experience your peace. I need to be reminded that you are in control over all things. Then it requires that you accept even the parts of Scripture that you don't like because you know that it's good for you. Because it's good for you. Because only when we see him rightly can we experience real intimacy and relationship with a God who is greater than us. 
Only then can we experience a life more and more in his presence. Only then when we allow him to shape us into his image and not the other way around, can we begin to walk in a life filled with his spirit, a life where we see the joy and the love and the peace of God radiate off of us, a life that looks more and more like Jesus. Jesus is calling us not to look within ourselves to figure out who he is. He says, lift your eyes up and you look to me. Colossians 1.15 says this of Jesus. It says that he is the image of the invisible God. Notice that word image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Exodus, God is saying, no, 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 you're not going to make any images of me. Instead, God, out of his love and his grace towards you, says, instead, if you want to know who I am, let me show you an image of myself, and his name is Jesus. We have something that the Israelites in the Old Testament didn't have 3,000 years ago. We have Jesus, the image of the invisible God. We don't have to guess. We don't have to try to figure out what God is like. Jesus puts that on full display for us. If you want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus In Jesus, we see the beautiful mosaic, the tapestry of of everything he is like. We look to Jesus. We see Jesus in all power to heal the the blind and the lame, to heal the leper, to heal the paralyzed. We see him with all power and authority to say your sins are forgiven. And we see that same Jesus with all meekness and vulnerability born into a manger. We look to Jesus, we see him possessed with uh, possessing all wisdom and knowledge as, as he meets those who are in need, people like Nicodemus and Zacchaeus and the woman at the well. He's filled with all knowledge and wisdom, and he's filled with graciousness to listen and to respond to those who are searching for him. We look to Jesus. We see him confronting sin over and over again. In scriptures, we see him confronting sin, and at the same time, we see him showing compassion for the sinner. We look to Jesus. We see him showing forgiveness and mercy towards those caught in sin, and he says towards those same people to repent, to repent of your ways. We look to Jesus. We see Jesus filled with gentleness towards the weak, the poor, the broken, and the very same Jesus filled with righteous anger towards those who defile his temple. We see Jesus with his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, showing all his brilliance and all of his glory like a flash of lightning. We see Jesus, and just a few chapters later, we see Jesus on another mountain, the Mount of Crucifixion, showcasing all of his glory and his power to us. If you want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. Amen? Amen. If we want to know what God is, Let's look to Good Friday. Let's look at Easter Sunday where we see Jesus' attributes most clearly on full display for all of us to see. On the cross, we see a God who is loving and a God who is holy. God is loving and holy. We see a God who hates sin because it's broken everything about us and our world around us. He hates sin and a God who goes to great lengths to bring you into his family. We see a God who allowed himself to be crushed by your sin and a God who conquered death because sin could not hold him down. Amen? God will not be put in our boxes. 
God will not be sanded down into an idol made with our own hands. No, he is the Lion of Judah. He is the Lamb that was slain. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the great I Am, and this is who we serve, and this is who we look to. And when you receive him and follow him and all his fullness and all of his glory and all of his attributes, here's what happens. His image begins to radiate off of you. You become what you worship. And our deformed versions of God's, those end up deforming us. But when we worship God rightly in all of his fullness and all of his glory, we in turn look more and more like the image of the son, Jesus Christ. The peace of God, the joy of God, the love of God, the patience of God, the holiness of God. All of that becomes available and accessible to us as you begin to reject more and more our false images of God. And you gaze on the beauty of Jesus, the perfect image of God who loved you, who died for you, who conquered death for you so that you could know him. This is the God we worship And this is the God we're called to believe, to close the gap in our minds between who we think God is like and who he really is, to know that God is greater than our own image of him. And that is the best, y'all, that is the best thing that could possibly be made available for us in a year where we, most of us are just exhausted, in a year where most of us are tired, where it just feels like we're just trying to make it to the end of the day where mentally we are fatigued, we are burnt out. God is calling us to something greater, to something higher, to fix our eyes to him, to look to him, to know that he is greater than any of our circumstances, anything that we are going through. He is greater than our false perceptions of him, and it is the best thing for us. So will you pray with me, please? As you pray, uh, as we are praying, uh, Holy Spirit, We ask you, you be with us right now, that we could experience your presence afresh. Spirit, we invite you into our minds and our hearts to examine and search the ways in which we try to project this false image of you. Spirit, will you bring to mind the ways in which we create false images of God so that we can repent So we can smash those idols. We can smash those mental images of what we think you are like. And instead, Spirit, will you hold up your son Jesus to us right now? Son Jesus who led and died, who who forgives us our sins. Son Jesus who conquered death, who sits at the right hand of the Father right now. Your son Jesus who says to us that we are more than conquerors for those who love him, your son Jesus, who says that you are working all things together for the good of those who love you. Holy Spirit, we ask you right now, will you work in us, lift up your son Jesus to us, that we might worship him, so that we might be with him, and in so doing, that we can be made more like him. This is our heart's desire. And spirit where we mess up, when we fall short, when we end up thinking these false images of you, will you be quick to quick to convict us so that we can repent and fix our eyes once again on you? Will you give us grace? 
give us grace by your spirit to more and more worship you and you alone for our good. We pray this in your son Jesus, the image of the invisible God. We pray this in your name.